Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. My name is Brandon J. Fedor, and I'm your host. This week, I spoke with Nicholas de Villers about his book, Opacity in the Closet, Queer Tactics in Foucault, Barts, and Warhol. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will too. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. de Villiers about his book, Opacity in the Closet, Queer Tactics in Foucault, Barts, and Warhol. Dr. de Villiers, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Okay, if you could just maybe give us a brief sort of uh, outline of your your biography. Sure. Uh, I was born in in Boston. Uh, My mother is British and my father is South African. So uh, that's why I pronounced my last name, Devilliers. And uh, actually, though, I was at a French studies conference where uh, they corrected the spelling of my first name. They dropped the H to make it look more French, Nicolas de Villiers, because they, they assumed that it was French. Um, so I passed as French on paper, but it's a, a South African name. And uh, so I was born in Boston. Uh, I went to uh, Simon's Rock College of Bard for my associate's degree uh, for undergrad uh, and then transferred to Bard College, where um, that was where I first got interested in, in queer theory. And um, in fact, I wrote my, my bachelor's uh, thesis on queer discursive strategies in film. And the, the case studies were the Alfred Hitchcock film Rope, um, the Tom Kalen film Swoon, Paris is Burning, The Crying Game, uh, John Waters films, and, uh, and my favorite was Pee Wee Herman. Um, so I was, I was lucky to be able to, it was a, a literature program, but to be able to write about film and, and cultural studies. So that's what um, got me interested in applying to grad school for a cultural studies uh, program. So I got my MA and my PhD in uh, comparative studies and discourse in society from the University of Minnesota. And I continued to pursue queer theory there, but also immersed myself in what many people now are calling French theory, uh, Derrida, Deleuze, Foucault, Blanchot, uh, Lacan, and Barthes. And uh, in fact, I don't know if you've read Francois Cousset's book, French Theory, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's this very uncanny feeling to read that book. Um, it's like the, the Roberta Flack song, Killing Me Softly, that you just feel like he's, he's describing exactly the, the kind of um, flourishing of French theory in the American Academy. So, um, so that was one of the things that I really immersed myself in. I really liked at, uh, at Minnesota. And my mentors there were uh, John Mowat and Cesare Caterino and Gary Thomas and Liz Coates. And Liz Coates especially encouraged me in my thinking about uh, Warhol and language. She got a seminar on Andy Warhol. Uh, But while I was at Minnesota, I was also an instructor, uh, and I often taught a course called Gay Men and Homophobia in American Culture. And in that course, I taught Yves Sedgwick, along with Foucault and Barthes. And that course actually allowed me to work out some of the limitations of the metaphor of the closet. Uh, as it is uh, often applied retroactively to historical figures uh, with the assumption that anyone who doesn't come out must be ashamed uh, or be uh, it must be a symptom of internalized homophobia. 
So uh, in that course and in my own thinking, I wanted to follow Foucault in placing coming out of the closet uh, within the overall history of the putting into discourse of, of sex, of confessional discourse, which uh, in History of Sexuality Volume 1, Foucault charts through the Christian confessional to uh, the psychiatrist's couch. Um, but I think now, in fact, confessional discourse has really spread, um, especially in new media, uh, online, uh, etc. So I wanted to place the closet within this, um, this history of confessional discourse, um, but also look at the closet as, um, uh, in particular, involving kind of double binds for the subject regarding what is considered public, what is considered private. And I want to reevaluate the uh, the urge uh, that people have to designate a person as in or out of the closet, and to take seriously the resistance to confessional discourse. Um, and also, following Foucault, the multiple meanings of both speech and silence about sexuality. So to consider that the refusal to tell the secret of one's sexuality is not necessarily synonymous with shame or complicit with homophobia. So I wrote my dissertation, which was called Opacity's Queer Strategies, on uh, the possibility of creating a, a queer public persona that might resist both homophobia and uh, the confessional or the closet. So the figures that I looked at in the dissertation were Michel Foucault, Roland Bach, and uh, Andy Warhol, and, and also at the genres that are typically associated with confession and authenticity, namely uh, diaries, interviews, memoirs, documentaries. So Opacity in the Closet is a, is a revised and expanded uh, version of, of that work. And where I expanded was more on the, the historical context, uh, looking at um, the emergence of gay liberation and the demand to come out, um, but also at the, the context of, um, of changes in journalism, uh, especially the, the pop art uh, celebrity interview and, uh, and the intellectual celebrity interview. Um, it sounds strange to say, but you know, I want to look at book shows uh, where Foucault and, and Bard were asked to, um, to talk about their work. Uh, what I also expanded on in, in this book is the, uh, my, my own relationship to archives. Since a lot of the, the work was, was um, completed, in, a lot of the, the research was completed at archives uh, at uh, INEC, which is uh, L'Institut Memoir de l'Edition Contemporaine in uh, France. That's where the Foucault archives are. Um, at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, which is the National Library, and at the Warhol uh, archives in, um, in Pittsburgh at the Andy Warhol Museum, which is where the, uh, the time capsules uh, are kept. And that's actually the, the cover image of the book. I don't know if you have the book uh, in front of you, but mm -hmm. um, that's the cover images of the, the Warhol time capsules. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and so what, what Warhol kept in these time capsules was basically his, his mailings, uh, uh, invitations, and especially press clippings. But, um, but looking over this image, I, I was really struck by also this, this strange sense of uh, a lack of hierarchy in terms of these ephemera. So one of the boxes just says gems and junk, <laughs> uh, and, another, and another one says new, newspaper headlines. So, um, so that was one of, one of the things I really enjoyed was being at the Warhol Museum and getting to look at the contents of these time capsules um, 
and also to, to listen to the tape recordings. There's, uh, there's so many tape recordings that, that Warhol kept. Um, some of them went, that went into the making of the books, uh, the philosophy of Andy Warhol and, and popism, but he also just uh, tape recorded almost constantly uh, his conversations and uh, the life of the factory. So, uh, so I, wanted, I, I was very happy to be able to use that image for, for the cover of the book. Uh, and then just to tell you where I am currently, I'm at uh, the University of North Florida, and I teach uh, English and film. I've been lucky enough to be able to teach some of my research. I've taught seminars on uh, Roland Barthes and on Andy Warhol, and a graduate course called Sex, Confession, and Autobiography, in which we look at the history of confessional discourse and uh, contemporary forms, uh, things like blogs and post-secret, um, uh, talk shows, etc., as uh, as new media versions of confessional discourse. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I might have to ask for a <laughs> syllabus from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm happy to share it. Okay, um, it, as a way to sort of transition into our discussion of the book, I know you wanted to speak about uh, Foucault, Bart, and Warhol, but I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the notion of opacity that you discussed in the introduction, yeah. because I think it's really fascinating and it'll kind of help uh, the listeners yeah. sort of understand the rest of the discussion. Yeah. So, um, so I, I intend opacity to be basically the opposite of transparency um, if, if we insist that someone be transparent um, and uh, it's related to the, the metaphor of the closet of kind of trying to see past someone um, and look at the, the hidden secret. So as a concept, opacity is a way of, of naming something that is visible but opaque and on the surface um, rather than transparent or see-through. And uh, I'm uh, in particular critical of the, the desire to see past um, the image presented by the subject. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of uh, desire at all costs to imagine that we can see through them to uncover some hidden secret. Okay. Um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, towards the end of the introduction, you were talking about sort of the uh, the paranoia that like Marxism and psychoanalysis kind of have trained us to to approach a text with, and you talk about yeah. uh, the sort of surface reading. Uh, uh, Sharon Marcus, I, I forget who else uh, you mentioned. Him. Sharon Marcus and, and yeah, Stephen Stephen Best. Um, and you know, I'm really encouraged by this this trend of of maybe rethinking the the approach to uncovering the hidden meaning of a work. Mm -hmm. um, and they relate it to the the hermeneutics of suspicion, which distrusts appearances and you know seeks a hidden meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also related to um, to later work by E. Sedgwick. Uh, where she makes a distinction between what she calls paranoid reading and reparative reading. And she argues that paranoid reading really places its faith in exposure. And um, she says that there's really limitations to that to that approach. Um, and also, I think uh, Ray Chow also says very interesting things about, uh, about surface reading, uh, in particular with, in, in the case of film. So, uh, so I, I want to basically contribute to, to that, um, that approach. Um, this 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 trend of, of surface reading. Hmm. Okay, well, Dr. Devillers, if you'd like to sort of uh, talk about the the three authors in particular that you outline in the book, I sure. think that would be good. Sure. Um, so, what motivated me to write about them together, uh, about Foucault, Barat, and Warhol together, is not only their their shared historical context. Uh, 
and, but also the, the fact that they're hugely influential to our thinking about sexuality and subjectivity, and yet none of them directly came out in the way that we now expect and demand such public figures to do. And um, what I want to look at is, is how they responded to that growing demand. And um, I wasn't satisfied to write them off as closeted. In fact, I think each of them offers a, a very thoughtful resistance to the workings of confessional discourse and the closet. And so I want to look at their self-reflexive writing rather than importing a kind of ill-fitting, Ill-fitting framework uh, or a metaphor or model to understand them. Mm. So I also wanted to put them in, in dialogue with one another um, to use them to read each other, which allowed me to not be entirely limited to speculating about the author's intentions, uh, especially because in, in, in their cases, it's especially ironic. Uh, that you know Foucault and the theory of discourse that he put forward, and uh, the the essay "What Is an Author," um, uh, Roland Barthes, the the author of the death of the author, uh, or Warhol, um, who many consider to have killed off the artist as the uh, sole uh, originator of the meaning of the work. Um, it would be too ironic to only insist on following their intentions. So, um, so I also look at how their personas were collaborative. And, and the way that their personas have taken on a life after their deaths. Hmm. But I am skeptical uh, or, or wary of the posthumous effort uh, to make them confess, whereby homosexuality is understood as a secret that needs to be uncovered by the critic. And uh, there's a kind of knowing, a knowing way in which that's done. And so I, I, I'm in particular inspired by Eve Sedgwick's analysis of what she calls knowingness, which is this privileged and, and sort of presumed knowingness uh, of, of authority, whereby we um, imagine that we know a secret about someone. Uh, so the example that I, that I start with is uh, of this kind of knowingness on behalf of a critic and a biographer is James Miller's The, the Passion of Michel Foucault. And Miller reads all of Foucault's work as what he calls an implicit confession of Foucault's obsession with sex and death. And really that, that obsession is more properly James Miller's own. Um, and I, so I agree with David Halperin um, in St. Foucault. There's a, a chapter called The Describable Life of Michel Foucault, uh, which looks at this problem of straight biographers um, writing about queer biographical subjects in a way that uh, makes them into an object of knowingness um, with, whereby the queer biographical subject is always at a disadvantage. And um, I was also really struck by Miller's kind of revenge against Foucault's resistance to confession by, by arguing, despite his efforts, you know, Foucault ended up confessing. And I was reminded of a passage from The History of Sexuality, Volume 1, where Foucault says that the, the confession has spread its effects so far and wide that, you know, one confesses or is forced to confess. So, so it seemed to me that Miller was actually forcing Foucault to confess despite his resistance. Mm. Uh, the, other, the other problem that I had with, with that uh, biography is the way that for, for Miller, Foucault's death from, from AIDS-related illness was seen as a, a kind of shaming secret 
that was that was revealed after Foucault's death. And so to, to counteract that uh, or to offset that, uh, I wanted to uh, look at a dialogue uh, or to create a dialogue between Foucault's late interviews in which he talks about homosexuality and uh, and friendship and uh, and connect those to uh, put those in conversation with uh, a novel by his friend Hervé Guibert called to, to the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life. And the narrator of Guibert's book is particularly aware of uh, the problem of betrayal of uh, the, the Foucault character. It's fictionalized. The character's name is Neville. And, uh, and so he's hyper-aware. He's keenly aware of this problem of betrayal. But also feels justified in writing about his friend's illness, about Neville's illness, because he feels that they share the same fate, uh, that they share the fate of zero positivity. And so I wanted to look at the, the clear temporality of that friendship that emerges between the two of them. And that's something that, that Eve Cedric discusses in Touch and Feeling. And it's also something that, uh, that one of my cohorts at University of Minnesota, one of my graduate cohorts and friends, uh, Tom Roach, um, something he discusses in his book uh, that just came out called Friendship as a Way of Life which takes its title from uh, the late Foucault interview called Friendship as a Way of Life. So, um, so both Sedgwick and, and Roach, and, um, and I hope to contribute to this thinking about queer temporality uh, in relationship to, to friendship and to, to AIDS. So, so that's part of the, the theoretical framework that I use. Um, and, uh, and also, I think that's a kind of um, a reparative reading that I want to offer. Of, um, of Foucault and Foucault's friendship with, with Guibert. So the theoretical framework of the book, I am very influenced by, by early Sedgwick, by epistemological closet, and the deconstruction of the binaries of the closet. But I'm also very inspired by that, that um, distinction that she makes between paranoid reading and reparative reading. Uh, and that actually helps me, the Sedgwick's sort of self-critique, where she looks at her own early work, uh, in terms of its its paranoid tone, um, and she also looks at the work of her contemporaries uh, in the, you know, very foundational figures in queer theory, Judith Butler and D. A. Miller, and their shared faith in exposure, and some of the limitations of that of that approach. Uh, so, so that uh, helps me with with addressing uh, in the chapter on Roland Barthes, uh, the the book written by D. A. Miller called Bringing Out Roland Barthes, um, which is very well intentioned in its desire to bring out. Uh, Miller says, you know, he's going to be bringing out both himself and that, and that's related to Guibert and Foucault. You know, that that Guibert uh, is speaking both about himself and about Foucault. But what struck me is that Miller, uh, D.A. Miller, in bringing out Roland Bart, has a somewhat condescending tone, uh, whereby Bart is seen as closeted and as unwilling to speak the name of homosexuality. And so it was related to the, the dissatisfaction that I felt uh, towards James Miller on um, Foucault with this posthumous treatment of, of Bart as an object of pity. And I, I wonder why it is um, that Roland Bart has a strangely, he has a strangely peripheral status in queer theory. And I wonder if that's maybe a paradoxical effect of viewing him as closeted, that 
uh, if we accept that coming out of the closet is a speech act, if it's performative, then, uh, then I ask, is it possible that declaring that someone is closeted might be performative, um, whether it has the effect of forever closeting them and making them actually less available for a queer reading on their own terms? So um, both Miller and I look at a, a preface that Roland Barthes wrote to a novel by uh, Renaud Camus called Tricks, and it's a, a basically a novel about gay cruising. And the preface is a really beautiful, very short uh, piece, but there's, I think Barthes says a great deal about his, his own critique of identity politics, of the limitations of identity politics. Uh, so he uses the preface as an opportunity, in fact, to weigh in on um, the, the issue of coming out or, or of declaring homosexuality as an identity. And what he, what he admires in Camus' novel is what he calls a certain way of saying I. And he argues that it's, it's particular to literature and that within Camus' book, that homosexuality is not presented as a topic for debate. And this really spoke to me because I think homosexuality is still presented as a topic for debate uh, in you know, the press, in, in various debates that we have over gay marriage, uh, gays in the military, etc. But, uh, but I like Bart's suggestion that, um, that, in fact, in Camus, uh, there is what he calls a form of silence that consists of speaking simply. And the phrase that he gives us is uh, that Camus' novel speaks homosexuality, but it never speaks about it. It never makes it into a topic. So the, the contemporary example that I can think of um, is kind of a, a pop culture, pop media example, is the two Bravo shows, um, Project Runway and Queer Eyes for a Straight Guy, um, especially the first season of Project Runway. I don't know if you have you seen either of those shows. Oh, uh, yeah, I have, actually. Okay, yeah. So... Um, so the distinction that I that I make is um, Project Runway. The, in the first season, none of the uh, the designers, it's a you know, designer competition show, come out directly. Um, that there's not a kind of what we expect from reality TV, which is them explaining their you know when they first realized they were gay or something like that, or when they first came out to their family. Whereas in Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the show is really relentlessly about the gay identities of these makeover consultants. And so it speaks exhaustively about homosexuality as a topic. And what I would say is that I don't think that that therefore means in comparison that Project Runway is closeted. Uh, in fact, I think that it, it speaks homosexuality uh, at, at, at many points through very flaming kind of camp dialogue. But he doesn't speak about it in the way that we expect of the kind of coming out narrative. And actually, that analogy, uh, this example, uh, was, was ruined by the later seasons of Project Runway, in which um, there is a much more perfunctory coming out that is expected of a designer. Hmm. So that's my, that's my example of uh, a contemporary example where I think that Bart's distinction is, is useful uh, between speaking homosexuality. Um, versus speaking about it, making it into a topic for debate. So Miller is skeptical of, of Roland Barthes' uh, preface and of this assertion that that's possible, um, that this form of silence that consists of saying things, uh, speaking simply. So he argues that it, it collapses back into the closet pretty easily. But I think Miller ends up overvaluing homophobia 
I think he ends up um, only understanding uh, Bart and Camus uh, in the terms of homophobia. But Bart actually suggests a concept of silence that is much more nuanced, uh, that it's not the same thing as censorship uh, or hiding or shaming. And uh, so that, that suggestion that silence is actually a form of speech or that, that form of silence that consists of speaking simply, saying things simply. Uh, I relate to something that Foucault also said in, in History of Sexuality, Volume 1, where um, he argues that silences function alongside the things that are said. And both early Sedgwick and early Miller uh, read that passage from Foucault as, as uh, an example of the closet, that the closet is an example of performative uh, silence that speaks. But both Foucault and Faust offer much more positive readings of silence and its relationship to, to speech. And that comes through, especially in the late Foucault interviews and in Barth's uh, courses at the Collège de France, uh, especially the neutral, um, where he's very interested in, in, um, in positive versions of silence um, rather than being silenced. In, a, in some sort of oppressive or censoring way. Hmm. I, I'll have to so, say that I, I really yeah. did love that distinction that you kind of draw out, the, the speaking simply. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I feel like it's sort of, because I mean, I've been frustrated in just in the, lo, you know, the little work that I have done in queer theory and the reading I've done, um, it, you know, about the, the, the symbol of the closet and how that, that idea of speaking simply sort of gives us a way to kind of move past that that binary, the in and out, in inside the closet, in outside out, the closet. Yeah. And I thought that yeah. was really interesting when you talk about Foucault uh, and his notions of silence, about how, you know, silence could mean a, an entire range of things. He talks about love, you know, the, being able to yeah, sense. Yeah, love and, and friendship as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. I, I thought that was really uh, interesting. And I, uh, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, that, uh, that it's helpful as a... As a a way maybe out of this binary of, of being in and out. And, and, and that's really something that, that actually late Sedgwick and, and late uh, Roland Barthes share uh, is an interesting non-dualistic way of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think Foucault's you know, idea that silence can function um, alongside the things that are, are said, um, his phrase is that um, the discourses are tactically polyvalent um, but I think that silence is, is polyvalent, that it, that it can work in multiple directions, um, some of which are repressive and some of which are, are not. So, um, so rather than viewing homosexuality as something that is silenced or unnameable in, in Roland Barthes, I, I wanted to look at what I see as his queer ethics of what he calls a suspension of meaning, which isn't the same thing as just refusal um, to acknowledge meaning. Uh, which is actually that's the that's the point of connection between between uh, Roland Barthes and Andy Warhol, that both of them were very interested in operations to empty out meaning. Uh, in the case of Warhol, it was through repetition um, that that he argued that the more you see something, um, the the more it loses its meaning. And uh, and the phrase that he gives that he gives us is wonderfully enigmatic: is the better and emptier you feel. <laughs> um, but. But I think that both Bart and, and Warhol um, were interested in this possibility of, of emptying out meaning uh, and also of displacing authenticity, the obsession with, with authenticity. 
So, so Bart was interested in experimenting with, with different ways of saying I, uh, in part something that, that he explains in that process to Camus. Uh, but ways that are not the same thing as straightforward autobiography. Uh, and so he looks at various forms, he experiments with various forms, the fragment, um, what he calls the novelesque, and uh, especially in his most self-reflexive book, the um, Roland Barthes by Roland Barthes, there's a, uh, a suggestion, um, the, the opening line is that all of it should be considered as if spoken by a character in the novel. And that actually relates back to something in uh, the Guibert. Uh, Guibert was also very interested in, in auto-fiction, uh, in the idea of, of uh, fictionalizing one's life, in transforming one's, one's journals, one's diaries, into a work of fiction. And uh, so, so Bard also experimented with the journal form uh, in Incidents and Paris Evenings, um, which were both published posthumously in the collection Incidents. And those texts... Uh, describe his relationships with young men in uh, Morocco and in Paris. And I don't uh, necessarily read them as revelations of the secret of his sexuality, um, which was somehow discreetly hidden from the world, only to be revealed after his death. Uh, and the, the fact that Roland Barthes' death was, was an accident also complicates things. Um, that there's a, a tone of finality to these later posthumously published texts. But, uh, and it's also, it represents kind of ethical problems for his editors about publishing this material. But, um, but I'm very glad that these, um, these texts were published posthumously, uh, in part because of the light that they, that they shed on, uh, Bart's attitude not towards homosexuality as something that should be hidden, but um, but especially in in the courses in the uh, the courses taught at the Collège de France, uh, the neutral, and most recently the preparation of a novel. In fact, Bart treats homosexuality as commonplace, as uh, as something that is easily recognizable to his listeners, uh, and as, as the way that the course has worked at the Collège de France, it was a you know an open audience of the public. And, uh, and he, I think he treats homosexuality as, as exoteric rather than some esoteric thing. So, uh, but in the neutral, especially the, the, the course on the neutral, he is uh, wary of, of journalism and of what he sees as the aggressive attempt of journalists to ferret out the sexuality of the subject. So he puts forward this idea of the neutral as a way of sidestepping the demand to pick a side. So, um, so back to what you were saying about uh, avoiding a, a binary way of thinking, that that, that whole course is about uh, a kind of third term or an alternative to a binary uh, of being in or out, for instance. So so that, that possibility of a neutral is something that, that he's, he expresses a very strong desire for. And But he also acknowledges that the neutral is often seen as cowardly or uh, that there's lots of negative images of the neutral. Uh, as um, as somehow quietist or complicit, um, but but for him it's a very strong and and, um, and positive term. This idea of avoiding um, what what may be a kind of dead end or mugs game debate. So the, the example I can think of, it, uh, a contemporary one, would be the the debate over whether homosexuality is innate or acquired. The the nature versus nurture debate. And uh, both Bach and, uh, and Foucault refused to get into that debate 
And in fact, in an interview, Foucault was asked, do you think it, that homosexuality is, a, is innate or required? Do you think it's nature or nurture? And he just said no comment. <laughs> and, and I don't think he was being, not being courageous. I think that he, uh, you know, he says it's because not everybody's being asked and I don't want to abuse my authority. But I think it's also potentially a, a, a dead end, that debate. Um, in part, it's a dead end because it assumes we, as long as we focus on that question of whether homosexuality is innate or acquired, uh, whether it's nature or nurture, we can't ask questions about gay rights now in the present. Um, and we, we also, I think it's necessary to, to step back from the debate and, and point out that it's only in homophobic society that we are obsessed with finding out what caused homosexuality. Um, so I think the, the neutral, being neutral in that debate also allows us to step back and, and consider the terms of the debate and whether it is a fruitful one or not. So, um, so Warhol also interested me in this, in, in his desire for, um, for a kind of neutral position. So his interview strategies uh, oftentimes uh, involve being neutral uh, and turning around the situation of the of the interview, uh, especially if turning around aggressive questions. So in those in those interviews that um, thankfully now have all been collected, uh, many of them have been collected in um, in I'll Be Your Mirror, the selected Andy Warhol interviews. But um, but what you notice in these in these interviews is that he often ends up turning the situation around, um, which is why I like that title, I'll Be Your Mirror. Uh, because the interviewer ends up saying far more about themselves, uh, about their own fear of being put on by Warhol or their fear of being put on by Pop Art. And uh, so they, they reveal more about themselves rather than Warhol telling them how they should interpret his artwork or how they should interpret his image. So that, that inspired me to be always more curious about the motives of the interviewer or the biographer or the critic rather than assuming that the subject should be faulted for not coming out directly. So rather than putting the subject on trial, uh, and I think there are some, some homologies between the, the interview and the trial, um, I think I want to follow a suggestion that Roland Bart makes actually in, in an interview where he says, I want to put the interview on trial. Uh, I want to look at um, why uh, the interview has such a dominant position within within media culture, and uh, and the way the way in which it functions. So so in the case of of Warhol and his critics and his interviewers, uh, they're they're often very frustrated by Warhol's alleged silence, uh, and and they're completely unwilling to take Warhol's statements at face value. So the, the, the most famous ones that, you, that you've probably uh, uh, heard um, even before you read the book is Warhol famous for saying, I want to be a machine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the other one, which uh, was actually when, they, when the U.S. Post Office had a, a, an Andy Warhol commemorative stamp, they used this quote on the, on the sheet of stamps, which is, if you want to know all about Andy Warhol, just look at the surface of my paintings and films and me, and there I am. There's nothing behind it. So, so what I look at, especially with that quote, is, is the fact that so many critics refuse to take Warhol at his word, that, that they insist, of course, there's something behind it. There's, there's got to be some hidden intention. There's got to be some hidden meaning. You can't be serious that if we want to know about him, we should look at the surface. So, um, so what I wanted to do is to actually 
to take him at, at his word uh, and to value that opacity that rather than the demand to, to see through him looking for some, some hidden depths. Which is why I, I include and I spend so much time on that uh, doing Michael's portrait of Warhol, where Warhol is covering his face with both hands. And the, the immediate tendency is to say that Warhol's hiding, uh, that we, we, we read it as hide-and-seek, you know, that that, that that's, seems to be what the gesture is. And I look at uh, the mention of that photograph in Bart's um, Camelocita, where, in fact, Bart reads it as not hiding anything. Um, he says, to me, Warhol hides nothing, because what he offers to be read is his hands. So, so that's an example of looking at the surface, looking at the at something that's visible but opaque, and not trying to look past it, not seeing it as a as a metaphor somehow for Warhol hiding the secret. So, so I'm very, very happy that I was um, granted permission to to reproduce that photograph. It can be very difficult to reproduce photographs. Uh, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> um, so. So I was very happy that Dwayne Michaels and, and his gallery were, were willing to grant permission uh, because uh, I really like Bart's reading of it, and I, and I think it's a helpful visual example of a different reading practice of, of how do you, how do you um, sort of change the habit of thinking that, that would only approach it as an example of, of Warhol hiding something. Uh, and the other the other habit of thinking that I that I wanted to to challenge about Warhol is the assumption that Warhol was silent that he was that 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 uh, he was always silent. In fact, he, he doesn't seem to me to be to be always silent. And so I wanted to look at Warhol's books uh, and his diary as instances where Warhol does have a very distinctive style of speaking. Uh, not only in, in the interviews, there's the, the distinctive kind of mon- monosyllabic. Uh, uh, yes, uh, no, maybe, haven't really thought about it, uh, which I, I compare in the book to the uh, Magic 8-Ball, where it's like, yes, no, try again later. <laughs> um, but but that's, that's him at his most monosyllabic, at his most basic. But in fact, um, in popism and the philosophy of Andrew Warhol, there's much more of an interest in, in memoir, in, in uh, cultural memoir, in the aphorism, in fragmentary kind of philosophical forms. So, so I wanted to, to really look at Warhol as a writer and not, not assume that he's silent. But what I discovered in, in popism and in the philosophy of Andrew Warhol, uh, and also in these interviews, is that Warhol is much more collaborative in the way that he, uh, in the way that he speaks. So oftentimes he'll allow other people to speak for him as a kind of proxy uh, and in fact, he saw his image as a collage of all the things that were said about him. So that's why, uh, again, looking back at the, the cover image of the, of the time capsules, that's why press clippings were so important. Is that in fact, that was the truth of Warhol's image, was this collage of all the things that were said about him. And there's a similar passage in, in uh, The Philosophy of Andrew Warhol uh, that was, in fact, collaboratively written with, uh, with Pat Hackett and uh, with Bob Colicello, in which Warhol lists all the things that are said about him and about his image uh, and when, while looking in a mirror. And, and so that is the truth, he argues, of, of who he is. So Warhol's artwork and his, and his interviews, to me, they say a lot more about how the media work and less about Warhol's own individual 
obsessions or pathologies. Uh, having, having said that, it's clear that there is still a very strong desire for tell-all books that promise to reveal some private or hidden aspect of Warhol. Uh, you know, the, the, the publishing industry has, has, has not stopped at all uh, um, at these, uh, these tell-alls uh, about these figures. But yeah, for me, Warhol... <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Um, well, I was just thinking about that. And I, I, you know, I was coming up with this question in my mind that you were talking about uh, the publishing industry and the tell-alls. And, I mean, you talk about this a little bit more generally about how, I mean, that and, like, Foucault's talked about this, about how that's, like, a societal tendency like we want to know you know we want to yeah to ferret this information out and you know i'm just i was trying to think while i was reading the book about how sort of the notion of opacity fits into into like larger society because on one side i feel like it's you know it's definitely an attempt to give to provide some agency like i we said earlier mm-hmm. to provide a way out like a, a third term and i just wonder like how yeah. it fits into the larger sort of scheme of society where, every, you know, larger society, they want to know that information. And so like silence has been seen as passivity and like the sin of omission, like you mentioned uh, in the book. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. I, I'm just curious about that. What you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, in terms of contemporary examples of, of, um, of that might test out this theory, I was really actually happy to discover that, um, a graduate student at the University of Illinois um, on a blog about Anderson Cooper coming out uh, used my book to to frame the, the problem. Oh wow! Uh, which was that which was that many people saw Anderson Cooper's closet, if there was one, as a kind of glass closet. I mean, Gawker and a couple sites were were really obsessed with trying to expose him. Uh, uh, you know, getting a picture of him and his boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but at the same time, he wasn't really in the closet either. And uh, and so one way of approaching it would be what Cedric calls knowingness, which is, you know, we all know this, this secret. But that maintains a certain degree of privilege over, over the subject. And, and those, those gawker exposés were like, you know, would, would try to catch little, little slips. Um, and so that's one approach. But I, I, I think that, that Anderson Cooper's idea of, well, as a journalist, and I was never ashamed of it, but this was not something that I thought was an important thing to put out there, um, that, that many people had a hard time believing that. that, that, that and, and so he said, I, I realized that, that I, it could be mistaken for shame. And so that's why I decided to come out, is because I didn't want people to assume that this is something I thought was shameful about. Um, and a lot of people responded by, you know, he came out in an email to, to Andrew Sullivan, and a lot of people responded by saying, uh, so classy, the way that it came out. And, uh, and I actually, I, I really like, there's a, there's a podcast called Throwing Shade um, with um, Brian Sassi and Aaron Gibson. And, and they kind of make fun of that idea that there's classy ways to come out. What, it's, uh, it's, they, called they, 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 <laughs> it's called Throwing Shade. It's oh, called uh, Throwing Shade. It's, it's a podcast. Oh, but, and um, they... They they give examples, uh, you know, parodying the idea of a classy coming out. Where they say the classiest way to come out is to come out to a Kennedy, to come out on a yacht, uh, to come out to, to Ina Garten in the Hamptons. Um, so 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 they're 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 pretty. You know, I appreciate their their um, their sarcasm about this idea that there are classy ways to come out. But at the same time, I I respect the the double bind that I think Anderson Cooper was was in. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and so there there are other examples. I and mean, when when the the astronaut Sally Ride uh, after her death, it was revealed that um, that she was lesbian, that she that that um, that she had a, a long term partner who in fact doesn't doesn't have full rights of inheritance. Um, and and the question was did that did she keep it a secret? Uh, was it a sign of her of her shame, or was this a question of how she negotiated her her public image? And uh, and so I think there are there are lots of other examples of that. That that that's why I think rather than necessarily judging the figure, I think it's helpful to think strategically or tactically. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so so that, again, part of the, the theoretical framework of the book is um, it, using this this concept of of strategies and tactics. And Foucault, uh, I think, is very helpful. How David Halperin argues that, that Foucault is very helpful for thinking about homophobia and homophobic discourse and how it can be resisted strategically rather than necessarily refuted logically point by point, that it's more useful to resist it strategically. And uh, But I also like the distinction that Michel Desserteau makes uh, between strategies and tactics. So Desserteau argues that Strategies are made from the position of authority and property, uh, and uh, so his, his analogy is that there's you know marketing strategies. Corporations have strategies, whereas consumers have tactics, which are much more on the fly, and uh, and depend on the situation. They're a matter of seizing an opportunity. So I think that uh, Warhol, especially the Warhol interviews can be understood tactically in terms of at this given moment, what can I do with um, the, the the format of the interview, the assumptions about me? Uh, and and Bart also insisted that he that he it was more important for him to think tactically about a given problem of meaning at a given moment. So so I think rather than necessarily judging a person for being closeted, I think it's more interesting to try to to account for their um, both overall strategy with regard to managing their their identity, uh, and and also the the tactics that the at what particular moment um, is is it right to to come out in this particular way? So I think Anderson Cooper is an interesting example of that mm. uh, of of thinking about the, the particular historical context and therefore tactically deciding that it's necessary to come out. Mm. Um, but but again, I think the 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 mandate to come out that therefore means that anyone who doesn't come forward is viewed as uh, as closeted, as ashamed of themselves. I think that that's also uh, an unfortunate overgeneralization. Mm-hmm. No, I, uh, I, I, so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I, I, well, I just wanted to say, I really found your book fascinating in the way um, you sort of talk about Foucault because when I was in grad school, I remember, you know, everyone I think goes through that phase where they're into Foucault a lot <laughs> when you first discover mm-hmm. Foucault. And I yeah. had a, uh, a professor who said, you know, people were really frustrated with Foucault, uh, you know, like his contemporaries, like you uh, like French uh, society, general culture, because he was so silent. And yeah. I mean, Foucault's work is so political, you know, and mm-hmm. um, his silence about his own homosexuality, about homosexual rights was so frustrating to people. And I really I've never I mean, I've read things about Foucault, I've read biographies, but I've but I've never come across a book like yours before that really kind of tackles that issue head on um, in the yeah. way that you did. And I really I really appreciated that. Um, I felt like I 
kind of came away with it with a much deeper understanding of Foucault and a, a better appreciation for for the way he handled the situation. Yeah, I, that's that's very nice to hear. I, especially uh, what I, even though I I also emphasize the history of sexuality, Volume One. Mm-hmm. Um, those who were really frustrated with Foucault, even Sedgwick herself, in in Touching Feeling and in uh, the the most recently posthumously published The Weather in Proust, faults Foucault for um, for basically trapping himself in a corner. Um, with regard to the repressive hypothesis, mm-hmm. and I think that that's an un- it's an unfair view of him, uh, and I think it's equally unfair to argue that he was silent in a in a shameful way, which many many of his contemporaries after he died said that Foucault's silence on the issue of homosexuality was the sign of it wasn't an intellectual silence; it was the sign the the, the sign of of someone who's ashamed. Um, but I think that that's not necessarily true if you look at the, the interviews that he gave um, to the gay press, for instance, um, the, the um, gay PI interviews that he does. So at the end of the Monarchy of Sex, um, there's an interview called Sexual Choice, Sexual Act, and, um, and the, that interview on Friendship as a Way of Life. In fact, you, he does um, say, talk very specifically about contemporary gay culture. Uh, in a way that in which he includes himself, but I think he was wary of uh, of plotting out uh, a particular course for gay liberation, of, of abusing his position as as a prominent intellectual figure. Um, but he was wary of that assumption that intellectuals should tell people what they should do politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that's something that he, that he really explores in those interviews. Uh, and so the other reason why I think it's kind of unfair to say that, that Foucault trapped himself uh, is that, in fact, the second and, and third volumes of the history of sexuality represent an attempt to um, to think beyond the repressive uh, framework. Uh, and uh, and this is something that's also been discussed by, uh, by David Halperin, uh, uh, this, refuting this idea that, that Foucault trapped himself. In his theory of power, uh, and by Deleuze in Deleuze's book, Deleuze's book um, Foucault. So, so I think that that's that's really the interest that I have is is in these interviews and and in the the later works as, as um, ways to respond to those critics who who see uh, Foucault as as flawed or um, as shamefully silent on homosexuality. I just don't think that that's true mm. uh, in terms of these interviews. But um, but I'm glad to hear that that it can encourage people to to look at those at those interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the other thing I really like in the in those light interviews um, is the the idea that Foucault suggests of the self as a work of art, and uh, his argument that we should consider the um, the writer's real work as the self in the process of writing, and he says that this is more productive than evaluating an author in terms of their authenticity or uh, or disauthenticity or unauthenticity. So to view the self as a as a performative effect of, of language. So that's something that I that I think has has um, a great many implications for for the both the figures that I discuss in, in the book and for for thinking about a writer's relationship to their homosexuality. Hmm. Well, Dr. DeVillers, it's been really great talking to you. I'm, uh, I've, I think we've taken up enough of your time, but I wonder is maybe sort of a, a way to close our conversation, if you could speak a little bit about what you're currently working on. Sure. Uh, so actually, a, a colleague and friend of mine 
said that um, he he read my book and and thought, he said that he thought that the case study chapters on Foucault and and Dawson and Warhol didn't fully exhaust the concept of opacity put forward in in the introduction, uh, and I took that as a as a good thing um, that that the case that the case studies didn't exhaust the the concept. So, so because it means that there is more directions that I can take the concept of opacity in, and that others can take the the concept in. So I mentioned already this this blog in which someone used it to to frame the the problem of Anderson Cooper coming out. Um, so it's exciting to see that that it has this kind of immediate utility in terms of contemporary problems. But also in the introduction, I, I uh, in discussing this idea of the self as a as a work of art that could be enacted or or fictionalized, I mentioned a few other authors: uh, Jean Genet, Yukio Mishima, and um, Samuel Delaney, among them. And so I've gone on to write about Samuel Delaney uh, uh, and look at his self-reflexive memoirs and a documentary that was made in collaboration with him by Fred Barney Taylor called The Polymath, uh, or The Life and Opinions of Samuel Ardellini Gentleman. And so I've published on that in, in Jump Cut and in a pedagogy journal called Transformations. So, um, so there I look at uh, the intersectional identity of uh, Delaney as a black gay writer. And this is a way of moving further beyond the closet as a as a raceless paradigm. That's the the, the critique made by Marlon Ross that um, that one of the other major problems with the closet is that it doesn't account for race. Mm-hmm. So uh, so my work on on Delaney was a way of of working working that out. And I've also continued to publish on Paris is Burning, uh, the documentary, uh, and looking at the queer, black, and Latino subjects of that documentary and how they relate, ironically, to the interview format and uh, and work to actually destabilize some of the assumptions of the ethnographic documentary. So I, I think that opacity as a, as a concept could be very useful for thinking about drag and for thinking about transgender and transsexuality uh, and possible critiques of the the narrative of coming out as transgender. So, so I think that that's another avenue that, that this could be taken in. Uh, I, in fact, I, I remember presenting uh, an early version of the, the introduction on opacity queer strategies at a conference uh, in California and getting an email from Jacob Hale uh, who said that um, that the concept of opacity would be very useful for thinking about trans uh, narratives. So I think that that's, that's definitely a potential, um, both for myself and, and for others to work on. Um, my next book project is a study of relations among confessional discourse, cinema verite, and documentary form. So I look at a series of ethnographic documentaries about sex work. So um, the, the cases are uh, Pasolini's film Love Meetings, uh, a film by a Czech director, Victor Grodeke, called Body Without Soul, uh, a film by Shohini Ghosh called Tales of the Night Fairies about uh, efforts by sex workers to unionize in West Bengal, and uh, a film by a Beijing filmmaker, Freyza N, called Night Scene which also looks at uh, sex workers in, in Beijing, but it, it's kind of a pseudo-documentary, parts of it are fictionalized uh, in a really interesting way. So in, in this new book, book project, I look at issues that are related to opacity in the closet, uh, namely the constraints and double binds that are, that are placed on queer and marginalized interviewed subjects. 
and I, I want to uh, perform a similar move of um, questioning the motives of the interviewer and the audience and the documentary filmmaker rather than necessarily questioning the motives of the subjects themselves, these mm. queer and, and marginalized sex worker subjects. So, so that's, that's basically the, the next book project. That I'm well, that on. sounds fascinating. Is, do you have a, a pub date for that yet, or is that still in the early stages? I don't, I don't, but okay. I'm, but I'm, I've talked about it with Fiat, the editor at University of Minnesota Press, and oh, I was okay. very happy to, to find that he was receptive and, and interested. So, um, so I'll let you know. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Great. Okay, well, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and reading your book. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nicholas de Villers, and I hope you join me next time when my guest will be Stacy Alimo, and we'll be speaking about her book, Bodily Natures Science, Environment, and the Material Self.